Well, I want to welcome all of our campuses joining us right now. I want to welcome our South Shore, our Gulf Coast, all those that are joining us online here at Little Creek. And I especially want to welcome the men and women at the Orleans Justice Center right now. Come on, can we just welcome all those that are joining us right now? So excited to see you guys. We are finishing up today, week three of a series uh, called United. I'm so excited. Uh, today, we've got my pastor and uh, Pastor Jim LaFoon, who comes every year uh, to be with us. Come on, how many of y'all love Pastor Jim? <laughs> pastor Jim has been my pastor. I have two pastors. I mean, you know, I need a lot of help. Come on. So Pastor Jim and Pastor Jacob Aranza both uh, act as our overseers uh, on our board, along with some businessmen in our church, but uh, helped oversee my wife and I, and so appreciate Pastor Jim. He comes every year uh, this same weekend to be able to minister and to be able to encourage. So Pastor Jim, we love him. He's, he's again, been a pastor many, many years, author, food connoisseur. Come on, Pastor. He'll talk about that. So we love it. Come on, why don't we just stand up, give a warm South Louisiana, South Mississippi. Welcome to Pastor Jim LaFroom. Thank you so much, Pastor. Well, all righty. Why don't we give God one great clap also? He is worthy of all our praise, all our worship. I love coming here to Louisiana. I really do love Steve and Jennifer and the great team here in the church. It's also probably my favorite place to eat in all the earth. It might have probably moved a bit above New York City. The Lord came to me and said, you have three days left to live. Go and eat wherever you are. I'd call Steve and come to the French Quarter. It's been my last three days there. Fellowshipping with him at the French Quarter. But humor aside, I do love coming here. Um, this is the third part in a series entitled United. How many know to have true unity, we need the help of God? Um, before I lay this message out for you, let me tell you a story. I have the privilege of traveling all over the world, and my travels can take me into the Syrian border with Muslim leaders, people that have turned to Christ there, to really all over. I was on a 19-day trip in September to India and the Middle East. And I was in India celebrating the 10th anniversary of a church there in India, and it's very unusual. Um, of course, India is known for being Hindu, and that's for sure the, the majority population there, but there are also millions and millions of Muslims, a minority population of Christians, they're Jains, they're Sikhs, and India has a history of religious violence. And right now, it's not an easy time in India would be the nice way of saying it not to be a Hindu. And this church is unusual because out of India's 20, 29 states, I may be one off, 25 of the states are represented in that church. So I went and watched our 10th anniversary. It was a four-hour service when you included lunch. And I, I was in tears a lot of the time, not just because it was a vegetarian lunch, it's India, um, <laughs> but because of what I saw. And I watched, the average age of the church is probably 23 years old. The elders are like 28 and 29. And watching that church, I realized I was seeing a unity that's impossible in the natural. I watched these young people from Hindu backgrounds, Muslim backgrounds, Christian backgrounds, 
and then they, what they call the seven sisters, the tribes that go along the northern part of India, up around China and Burma, which were the headhunter tribes, and basically evangelized by American missionaries. And, and I watched these kids all in kind of the costume of their state for this anniversary, fellowshipping, worshiping, dancing, falling in love, wanting to marry. And I realized that's a taste of heaven. Because the unity I saw there that crossed ethnic lines and religious lines in a nation fraught with strife is the kind of unity described in the Bible. The unity I want to talk with you about today is not based on homogeneity. It's not based on being the same ethnicity, having the same demographic. How many of you know people you know that have the same ethnicity get divorced all the time? I'm talking about a unity that's only possible with the help of God. A unity that can take people that hate one another and make them friends. A unity that can cause Catholics and Protestants to go to church together in Belfast, right in the shadow of the wall that still divides them. This message, of course, is titled Unity in the Church. I'm gonna break it into five very simple parts. I wanna talk about the power of unity. I wanna picture it in scripture. Talk about some of the pain to achieve unity in scripture. Then I'll share three principles that I think are the key to generating unity, whether it's in your church or your home or your business or your friendship. And I'll talk about some practices. Holy Spirit, we invite you to bring us into the greatest unity we've ever known. Lord, the kind of unity you describe in scripture is only possible with your help, and we ask for it, amen. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul starts by saying, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Why does Paul take that? Because there is no unity without effort. If you're going to have the unity you want in your home, in your community, in your church, it is going to take effort. Kathy and I are working on our 39th year of marriage. Multiple children, multiple grandchildren, just had triplet grandchildren, and we're still in love and we still like each other. But that has not come without effort. I can remember almost 40 years ago when we, were, when we got engaged. I know I look 23, it's not really true. This is what a life of living right will do for you, kidding. I'm 63. And we made two commitments the Holy Spirit built in our heart. One, we would never, ever go to bed with an unreconciled difficulty. Now, I might add, we stayed up till the sun came up a few times. But the fact of it is, we never fell asleep unreconciled. Number two, God said, every night you're together, spend it before you, do, before you go to bed in the word and prayer. We did those two things. And being loved by God every night gave us the ability to love one another, even when we are unlovable, and not going to bed unreconciled built something different. Make every effort. Now, the power of unity is in Scripture. I mean, in Genesis 11, 6 or 7, God looked down and saw the Tower of Babel and said this. If it's one people speaking the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan will be impossible. Even in the world outside the kingdom of God, unity is a powerful thing. If a group of people, even two people, can agree on something and give themselves to it, things change. Jesus said in Matthew 18 and 19, 20, if I can just get two of my people 
If I can just find two of my people who agree about anything, if I can bring two of my people into unity, anything they ask for, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. Where two or three gather in my name, there I am. Because if I could just unify two people, it's one of the power of praying with your spouse. The power of praying your spouse is 38 years, night after night, almost 39, praying every night for our children, every night for our friends, every night for those we pastor and love and care for, every night. And when Kathy and I agree in the spirit on something, there's a power released to those we love and those we care for. Now, the unity described in the New Testament was not based on homogeneity, was not based on common interests or the bonds of friendship. In fact, the diversity of the New Testament church made unity impossible without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Paul describes some of this in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. He says, you're all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body. That's fairly unified. Whether Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free. The unity Paul described brought Jews and Gentiles together. You know, the Bible said God's plan seems foolish. But the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. Who but God would take the most hated minority in history? Who but God would take the most persecuted minority in history and make them the center of his plan to change the world? I mean, those little group of Jews that Jesus discipled, they hated Gentiles. Their religion is so codified around their pain, they would not have gone into your house unless you were Jewish. They wouldn't have touched you. And God so moved on their heart that they began to evangelize the Samaritans who, when they were ethnically cleansed by the Assyrian Empire, replaced them. God so did something in their heart that they evangelized their conquerors, the Roman soldiers. God says, the unity I'm talking about brings slaves and their masters together. Now, we can see in the New Testament the trajectory of God hating slavery, and it'd be dealt with. But in the very New Testament times, slaves and masters were in the same church. In fact, in Philemon, Paul writes about a runaway slave and says, by the way, your slave that ran away is now with me. I'm discipling him. Treat him as your brother, not as a slave. That's the reality of New Testament unity crossed lines of demography, crossed lines of ethnicity. You see in Acts 8, 14 through 17, you find the apostles evangelizing Samaritans and thousands of them coming to Christ, their mortal enemy. You see in Acts 10, 27 through 33, you know the story of Peter. Peter was a nice way to say he was ethnocentric. The last thing on Peter's mind was evangelizing a non-Jewish person. He was up, it was lunchtime, you know, he's a good young Jewish boy, and all in a sheet comes down from heaven. Would have been in Louisiana, would have been crawfish etouffee in there, big fried shrimp. I mean, and the Lord says, take eat. If I'd have been Peter, I'd have said, about time, thank you, Lord. Peter said, no way, it's unclean, I won't eat it. Three times it happened, and then he was rebuked. Don't you ever call unclean what I tell you is clean. Someone's getting ready to knock at your door. Go with them. Peter's shaken up. Opens the door. It is a servant, probably a soldier himself, of a Roman centurion. My master asked 
that you would come. He's been waiting for you. Only Christ could have empowered Peter to go to the very army that had slaughtered them and in 40 short years would wipe out their capital. How's that happen? Talking about this same group in Acts 4.32, on the day of Pentecost, multiple language groups and ethnicities, though with a common bond of God-fearing, they were swept into the kingdom. And by Acts 4.32, they were having everything, heart and mind, unity, giving away their possessions. How's it happen? I'll never forget one of the churches I worked with in South Africa. It had been even really in the days of the ending of apartheid, thoroughly multi-ethnic. Black South Africans, white South Africans, colored South Africans. That's not a slur there. It's a commonly accepted word. Um, you, Indian South Africans. And the late President Mandela, when he was still living, was walking through this campus and he looks in and sees two or 3,000 people in the auditorium worshiping together. He's moved by that. He sends word to the pastor. It's the president. Could I speak? Well, what do you say to the president? The president walks up, he begins to cry in front of the church and says, what you have here, I went to prison for. Pray our nation could find this. How's that happen? I sat with a, an elder in a great church recently, and he had grown up um, in a Protestant secret society at the highest level to maim and destroy Catholics in their churches in Belfast. He told me the story of how he cursed himself and took secret oaths and at seven began to persecute Catholics. Radically saved, baptized in the spirit, now the associate pastor in a Protestant Catholic church butting up against the wall that divides the neighborhoods. How's that happen? How's God bring unity? I was at a church in Virginia recently. It's in the Shenandoah Valley. It is surrounded by war memorials. It's where Stonewall Jackson had a lot of his great victories in the beginning of the Civil War. There's a rapidly growing church there. I mean, hundreds, probably touching a thousand now. The, the pastors are both African-American, the pastor and the senior associate. The senior pastor is 34, the associate's 33. Their eldership is white in their 60s and 70s. You tell me. How's that happen? There's no sensitivity training that'll prepare you for that. There is a unity possible in Christ. No matter how hurt you are in your childhood, you can have unity in your marriage. No matter how some ethnicity has treated your ethnicity, you can walk in unity with them. How's it happen? How's it possible? How can we become friends with our enemies? How can we evangelize those who hated us? Who but God would have chosen the most hated people in history to change the rest of the world? Who? How? Yet when you look in the New Testament, it is no easy matter. In Acts 15, 38 through 40, Paul, the man that wrote many of the words I just read to you, He's with his pastor, the man that discipled him, Barnabas, his best friend. They get in a fight over a young staff member and end their friendship. To make it worse, Paul, by the end of the ministry, wants that kid on his staff. How's that happen? Paul, the author of much of the New Testament, 
basically friendship shattered. One of the greatest partnerships in all of history for the gospel, broken. I mean, then you look at this interesting story in Galatians 2, 11 through 13. You can read it for yourself. Paul said, man, Cephas, that's Peter. He came to visit our church. I mean, Peter was the man. That would have been like Billy Graham coming to your church. Peter was the man, the apostle. Jesus kind of left some of his authority to. He's coming down to Antioch, and he's always come before. He's eaten with the Gentiles. He's eaten with the Jews. He's fellowship. He's hugged the Gentiles. All of a sudden, a group called the Judaizers come who are suspicious of the Gentiles. The minute Peter sees them, he cuts himself off from all the Gentiles and won't eat with them. Imagine that pain. You're a young believer. This is Peter who you've heard preaching, and all of a sudden, he ignores you. It gets so tense that Peter stands up in front of everyone and confronts him and rebukes him. How about that's fairly painful? Unity's no easy matter. Philippians 4.2, talking to two of the great women in the church, Paul says, listen, Euodia and Sinchi, please get unified. There's Paul's plea in flame in 15 through 19. By the way, the slave that escapes with me, I've discipled him. He's got the call of God on his life. Don't treat him as a slave anymore. He's your brother. These words would have ramifications deep into the abolition movement, which was triggered by words like that. It's funny how different people read the Bible. Part of America used the Bible to justify slavery. The other part of America used the Bible to have abolition. The fact of it is the trajectory of Scripture is very clear. Don't treat them as your slave. Treat them as your brother. Now, how can we find this unity? How can you find unity with that spouse you love but he or she were traumatized? How can you truly walk in fellowship and brotherhood or sisterhood with someone just not like you? Maybe with someone that exploited your ethnicity. How do you as a man or woman have this unity? One of the marks of Church of the King, and I've known Stephen Jennifer before they started this church, has been unity. There's always been a beautiful spirit of unity here. The larger it gets, the more diverse it becomes. As you plant more sites, the more complex it becomes to keep the unity you desire. I think we all realize America's fraught with dissension right now over ethnic lines, over political lines. How do we as a church demonstrate unity? I go to church, I can remember walking through church parking lots and seeing all kinds of bumper stickers for Romney and Obama. I've seen them with Trump and I've seen them with Hillary. I mean, how? How do we rise above political polarization? How? How is that possible? I believe that the essence of unity, there are three principles that generate it. And if you can capture them, it'll help you. Now, I've reversed the order, and I'm sorry to the, uh, the video team. I, maybe they found it, but basically, it's gonna go, I'm going to go from the influence of the cross to um, identification with Christ and inspiration of the Spirit will be last. Let me talk about the inspiration of the cross. Because of the cross, 
the work of Christ, not just his death, but his resurrection, we have the power to be both unified with God and with humans. He said, for he himself is our peace. Now, this is going to speak about Jews and Gentiles to start with, but we can carry it out from there. He made the two one. In other words, all the years of pain between Jews and Gentiles, then all the, all the law and everything within the Judaism religion said, through Jesus, who completely fulfilled the law, fulfilled all the requirements of the law, the Gentiles, and if you were to go basically into the temple of Jerusalem in those days, and if you were a Gentile leaving the court of the Gentiles, there would be signs posted. If you're a Gentile, go any farther, you could die. How? In Jesus, law perfectly kept. In Jesus, the requirements of the law met, enabling all of a sudden Jews and Gentiles to become one as the gospel spread from the Jewish world to the Gentile world. By abolishing in his flesh the law with his commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man. This unity is so radical, and I'll talk more about it in a moment. The purpose of God was not just to have Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians, or African-American Christians, Caucasian Christians, or Asian-American Christians, no. The purpose of God was to have one new, if you were, spiritual ethnicity. One new identity. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 32, do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God. The great church father Clement of Alexander, who died in 215 AD, said this, we who worship God in a new way as the third race. God's after something. We'll see that in a moment. He says, out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. The power of this cross enables Catholics and Protestants to go to church in Belfast. The power of this cross enables Muslim believers in India to fall in love with pastor's sons. Why? Because of the power of the cross, we receive the power to give the same forgiveness to God gave us. Peter asked in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, how much should I forgive? The law required three times. Peter thought I'll more than double it. If I forgive seven times, is that enough? Jesus said, no, seven times 70, what's that mean? Or 77, depending on how you interpret it, means this, as much as it takes. Jesus, there was a man who owed 10,000 talents to the king. King was gonna put him in prison. He begged his forgiveness. King let him out, spared his wife, spared his children. The minute he got out for, for almost no money in comparison, 100 denarii, he put a man in prison. When the king heard it, he said, because you didn't forgive, you'll not be forgiven. It'll imprison you. If the God of all the universe can forgive you, what can't you forgive? What can't you forgive? I know what I represent as a white male in many parts of the world and many parts of this country. Fact of it is, one of my relatives owned more slaves than anyone in the state of Kentucky. That is reality. I stood before African Americans with the power of reconciliation. Many times, I pastored multi-ethnic churches and stood and said, forgive me for what people like me did to you. It was a sin. 
I've stood in China in front of intellectuals and students as they cried, asking forgiveness for the very fact that Protestant missionaries negotiated the treaties that allowed the gospel to penetrate China, but also allowed opium to penetrate China. These are realities. But because of who we are in Christ, we have the power to both ask forgiveness and to forgive. He has forgiven me of so much, there's nothing I cannot forgive another human for. Then there's the whole issue of identity. Now think about this for a moment. This hit me so deeply in the last year. Paul said in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It does not deny the reality that there's religion. It doesn't deny the reality that there's demographics. It does not deny the reality that there's gender. It doesn't mean that I'm not a white male. It doesn't mean that I'm not, um, I have a gender. I have a demography. I'm college educated. It doesn't mean that. What does that mean? It means that when you become a Christian, your highest point of identity is not your gender. Your highest point of identity is not your ethnicity. Your highest point of identity is not your national affinity of the country you're born in. Your highest point of identity is not your education or your social class. Your highest point of identity is, I am a Christian and I live for another kingdom. Now, what does that mean? Let me, let me roll this out for you. When I lived in a war zone in a Muslim area as a young believer, a worker many years ago, they're killing people, kidnapping people, war. The State Department had made all the Americans go home and there I sat. And the Holy Spirit told me, you'll never reach these people as an American, you will as a Christian. You need to change your identity. What do I mean by that? When I go into the ballot box, my question is not what is not what is good for middle-aged white male Americans. It's what is best for God's kingdom in the United States. That is my point of identity. That shifts the way I look at everything. How I respond to crisis. How I see things. My question is never what is better for Jim LaFoon and people like him. When I look in the world as much as I love my country, served in an elite military unit, my generation of being in the military goes all the way to the Revolutionary War for my family. But my question is not what is best for America ultimately. Jesus, what is best for the advance of your kingdom in this earth? That doesn't mean I wouldn't defend my country, but it means that my ultimate allegiance is not to my gender, it's not to my country, it's not to my age, it's not to my education, it is to Christ and his kingdom. It's what I live for. It's why as much as I'm political and I love politics, I am not partisan about anything but Jesus and his kingdom. It's what I live for. It's what I burn for because he is the only one in this institution called the church that can save this world. And so Christianity will bring you into an identity crisis. It'll shake up your identity. Now, Let's go to the most important one, possibly. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This, in my opinion, is the secret to having the unity you want in your home. It's a secret 
to maintaining unity and friendship. I was telling Pastor Randy last night, I've seen 40-year friendships among pastors destroyed. I've seen 50-year marriages, people claim to love each other, disintegrate. It's not enough how long you've known someone will not stop that relationship from being destroyed. And it's not just your flesh. There's a very real enemy. The Bible calls him the devil who fears unity and fights it. It's just true. Paul said this, for we were all baptized by one spirit. That means it's the Holy Spirit that gave us new natures. It's the Holy Spirit that makes us one to form one body, whether we're Jews or Gentiles, slaves or free, and we are all given the one spirit to drink. Now this word drink is so very important. It's defined for you in John 4 when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well and you discover drink and worship are synonymous. So what is Paul saying here? It says, as we worship, as we come before God, as we spend time with God, as we're in his presence, hearing the word preached, reading the word, confessing the word, in reality, we're drinking of the Holy Spirit. Our new nature is being flooded with peace, flooded with power, flooded with God. And it's this act and lifestyle of drinking of the Holy Spirit that gives you the power to forgive your spouse, that gives you the power to forgive your Christian brother or sister, that forgives, gives you the power to forgive someone that offends you in this church, and they will sooner or later. If an offense can cause you to leave this church, the enemy will do his best to make sure you have one. I have no friends, and I probably have a dozen lifetime friends that have not offended me. I have no friends that haven't hurt me. Some of my best friends have even betrayed my trust in the past. Well, why would you be friends? Same reason Jesus didn't give up on Peter. That's what we're called to. But if I don't drink of that, you say, why are you and Kathy so in love? Because every morning we start our day in the same place. She's drinking of the Holy Spirit in, her, in the word. I'm drinking of the Holy Spirit in the word. And even when she's unlovable, which is rare, God loves me back when I'm kind to her. Paul said, this thing is maintained by drinking of the Spirit. Beloved, you can't even love someone like you for a lifetime fully without the help of the Holy Spirit. And it only gets harder. If I gave up on those I'm called to love because I've been hurt or offended, I'd have very few friends left and I'd be unreconciled with different ones of my children, all of which have hurt me at some time or the other. Maybe not terribly, but it's reality. It's life. Paul said we experience this oneness because we've all been given the one spirit to drink. The privilege of worshiping and being in God's presence is a gift that only you can choose to drink. Lastly, the practices of unity. When you look in Ephesians 4, 25 to 32, Paul brings some structure. And if you don't embrace this structure, unity will just remain kind of an ethereal concept to you. Paul says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. What's that mean? Don't act like you're fine in church when you're not. Don't come acting like all is well and not telling someone here how you're doing and then walking away feel rejected because no one noticed. 
The Bible says, don't lie. What's that mean? If someone in relation to you asks how you're doing, don't say fine if it's not true. If you hurt with someone in the church, don't wait for someone to figure it out. Go to one of the pastors. Go to one of the leaders. I'm hurt. Help me. If someone wounds you and you're afraid to talk to them, the Bible says, don't act like you're fine. Deal with it. He says, in your anger, don't sin. How many of you found that to be hard? Well, here's what you have to do. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. You know what that means? If you remain angry overnight, the enemy can already chip away at that relationship. I didn't make this what it says. Hurt. Church grows, gets big, you can feel ignored. You miss a meeting, don't hear something. You miss three Sundays, wonder if anyone cares. Don't hide that. Go to someone who can help you and talk about it. Goes on to say this. I'll skip down. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander. Lord, help me, that's hard. Along with every form of malice, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. You know, when Kathy and I got married, we determined that we'd live in such a way that our home was not filled with arguing, that our home was not filled with strife, anger, and name-calling. Why? It was more than just not hurting us. It was more than just not hurting our children. It was this, that grieves the Holy Spirit. That when you're unkind to your brother or your sister or your spouse, you don't just grieve them. You don't just grieve your children. You grieve God himself. And we wanted God to be as home at home in our house as he was in our church. And I know if you've come from a traumatic background, in a painful childhood, which I did, and I'm very fortunate. I know if you do, it's much harder, and God has lots of grace for you. And even when you grieve him, he doesn't leave you. Thank God, he never leaves you or forsakes you, but it grieves him. And if you'll drink of this spirit, if you'll begin to practice these principles, it'll help you. This is my closing thought, but I'll summarize and pray. This verse struck me in a very powerful way in Galatians 5. He said, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping one command. This is scary. Love your neighbor as yourself. What about loving God? Well, the fact of it is, you'll never love your neighbor like you love yourself unless you're loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It's impossible. If you bite and devour each other, watch out. You'll destroy each other. Man, alive. Ever walked into a church that's devoured one another? I have. It's never happened here. Always been unity here. It's one of the reasons it's grown and thrived. So here Paul warns us not to bite and devour one another. In John 6, 51, down through 63, Jesus gives that sermon that scared everybody. 
drink my blood, eat my flesh. Scared him, is he calling for cannibalism? What's that mean? Well, he later interprets it as this. The spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. These words I have spoken here are full of the spirit and full of life. What's Jesus saying? Feed on me through my word. Feed on me through meditation. Here's what I've discovered. If you devour the word, you'll rarely devour your brother or your sister. You devour that word. Sensitize with your conscience. Pastor Steve, join me up here, please. I love coming to this church, not because it's large, but because it's whole. It's healthy. Not everything big is healthy. Don't kid yourself. Today you'd say, Pastor, I want to come to a new level of unity, whether it's with your friends or your home or with a brother or sister. Just raise your hands. I need a whole new level of unity. Wave them at me. Put them up all over the building. Let me see. Don't be embarrassed. Yes, Holy Spirit, yes, I invite you to bring Church of the King to even a greater level of unity. Yes, I ask you for every home, every family, every friendship. Yes, I thank you for the unity that's possible in you. We're just astonished today that you've made us one. We're like a whole new people. We're your body. We're your family. We're your house. Yes. We're your children. No matter what our demography, our ethnicity, our nationality, our education, our gender, we're so privileged today. Yes. Pastor Steve. Yes. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand. I want to just pray just for a moment. There's two things. Thank you, Pastor. Can we just honor Pastor Jim? Thank you. Thank you for that word. Let's say a couple things. Just stay with me just for one moment. Number one, I want to say one thing up front. Unity, I want to qualify one thing. It's important. Because people email me. <laughs> Muslims, Hindus, and all. The unity, it's not religious unity from different religions. It's those people coming out of Hinduism, coming out of Islam, coming out. And they're rallying around Christ. Does everybody understand that? It's very important because I don't want anybody to go out here. Church of the King says Muslims and Hindus, and they're all religious, and they're all together. No, I didn't say that. People coming out of backgrounds, Hinduism, Buddhism, Shintoism, Islam. And, but the, the commonality is, is they're coming to Christ. Does that make sense? True unity is not conceptual. It's heart reality when you've been born again by the Spirit of God. So that, that's important. Second of all, I want to say this. What's difficult for people to be unified is when they have been hurt in their heart. Because they're, they're, it's a trust issue. It's tr whether you, Everybody's been taken advantage of, right? Everybody at some point in time. I want to say one thing. After our service, our altar's going to be open. And this is a, a moment to be able to come and get prayer. And maybe your heart, maybe it's in a family. May, maybe you've been married before. That, I'm, never doing, I'm never letting anybody get close. Well, remember this. The walls that we put up to protect ourselves, actually the walls that are put up to prison, imprison ourselves. It, they become the very prison walls that we build through our, our, our mindset and our actions and our attitudes. And so we can't live walled in. How many you know we can, it's no fun living walled in? It's no, so I believe God wants to heal us, but we've got to, we've got to allow that to, we've got to allow that to come down. I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads right now at all of our campuses. I'm going to take one moment here. If you are in this place, the very first step 
being part of the solution in a broken world and not a problem is when our hearts have been transformed by Christ. If you're not sure about your relationship with God, if you're not sure if you die today, you're ready to stand before God. I want to pray with you. I'm literally going to take one moment. If you say, Pastor, pray for me. I need the blood of Christ to wash me. I want to surrender my heart to God. Again, a church can't save you. I can't save you. Church of the King can't save you. But what I can do is I can point you to Christ. He's the one that saves. The Bible says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you know Christ? Do you know that you know if you died today that you're ready to stand before God? With everybody's heads bowed and eyes closed at all of our campuses, all the men and women at the Orleans Justice Center right now, I sense the Holy Spirit moving in a wonderful way. Say, Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ. If that's you, would you just lift your hand up high at the count of three so I can see it and we'll pray. Say, Pastor, pray for me. I need Christ. If that's you, one, two, three. Quickly, hold your hand up so I God bless